we're live. Ashley with a big smile, flexing her biceps as always. Flexing her cheek muscles. Flexing her biceps. I like the background. Very well done. Thanks. A little something new. Yeah. So everybody, welcome to the live edition of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Our mission with this podcast ultimately is to empower you with the wisdom, the skill set, and maybe the ability to ask better questions. And that's really the topic of today's podcast, helping people get to their own conclusions or come to their own conclusions rather than being dogmatic about anything in life. Let's find out what works for you. And I want to present a new perspective today on exercise that I think maybe will help some people to start to understand how to look at this in maybe a more effective way. I've been incredibly blessed in my life to be mentored and have learned from some of the brightest people certainly in the world. And I continue to get exposed to people who I didn't know existed, who are much smarter than me and probably much smarter than most people out there. It's such an honor to learn. And every time I learn something new, I'm taking it in, seeing how it fits, seeing how it applies, seeing how I can offer some perspective to the listeners, and then obviously applying it to my life in any way I can. So that's kind of giving you guys a context of today. Hopefully, we can give you a new paradigm or a new way of looking at exercise that hopefully opens your eyes to what it's meant to be rather than what you think it is. And the way I will always start my classes as I teach around the world is the very thing that will prevent you from progressing is what you think you know about exercise. So rather than dogmatically attaching to what you think you know, I suggest that everyone think and I'd like to make that kind of the topic of today's podcast is this conversation around thinking. And we'll go a little bit deeper, Ash. We'll answer some other questions as well. But I just wanted to kind of introduce that as we start off so people can get an idea of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Forgive me if my lead-in question to this is too generic, but maybe it's just a way to start framing this conversation because I definitely think that this is the basis of so much of what you teach and obviously very important. It's kind of the first step before you get into any details. But one of the things I think that we see a lot is this messaging of think before you act and mm -hmm. know to ask the right questions. It's about asking the questions first, but where do you start? Know know that where you start. Right. So I guess this is why I want to provide this context is because my business has been centered for the last eight years around teaching people to pay attention to what happens inside of your body. It's this meditative approach to exercise. And that sounds esoteric or maybe even turning people off of what I teach. It's not meant to be meditative. It can still be getting down, gritting your teeth and getting after. In fact, it's exponentially more challenging than any type of exercise anyone else is doing because it's actually directly challenging to your muscle. But to summarize what I teach, I teach an internal view, an internal perspective of exercise, what I'll call muscle-centric exercise. Whereas most people are paying attention to what's happening outside of their body. They're paying attention to the exercises. So what I want to present today as a jumping off paradigm for people is this reality that exercise exists inside of the body and outside of the body. And it's the marriage of those two that will ultimately allow you to start to understand exercise. So what's happening inside of your body? It's this orchestration of muscle contraction that happens in response to resistance. So every movement that happens is a result of some type of resistance ultimately, right? If it's our feet, applying resistance against the ground against friction or whatever happened, whatever that movement happens to be, it's our muscles responding to resistance. And our bodies have a varying ability to produce force against resistance. So depending on the position your body's in, 
a squat, a bench press, a deadlift, a bicep curl, a, a shooting a basketball, whatever it is. You're trying to create a position of ultimate leverage that allows you to move resistance, allows you to move these loads that we're subjecting our body to. So that's the internal world, right? So we have this internal muscular reality. So if you could strip away all of your skin and your fat, you see these muscles that exist and each of them has a line of pull and each of them has a function and multiple functions. And depending on the position they start in, they can apply a different function. So that's the internal reality. And then outside of the body, you have all of these implements of resistance. And those are what we call exercises. And the ideal scenario for exercise is for the external reality or the external mechanism, so the exercise, to perfectly match the internal reality. So what that means is I want to have the ability to create an exercise that in some way perfectly matches what my body is capable of doing as far as force production. So I want it to be hard where I'm strong and light where I'm weak, ultimately, right? Or I want it to match in some way as I progress through a set to match my body's ability to generate force, which obviously changes every single rep. How I am on the first rep is not how I am in the fifth or the eighth or the twelfth because that changes. So my ability to produce force also changes with fatigue. So there's all these different things to consider. And I think if people can start to conceptualize there's an internal reality of exercise and there's an external reality of exercise. Internal being my muscles ability to contract, how they contract from each position and ultimately trying to make certain ones contract in different proportions to the other one. And then an exercise that overlaps on top of that, that in an ideal world matches what my body is capable of doing or challenges my body in a way that's most appropriate and most efficient, most effective meaning if my muscles, as I say, just to reiterate, as if my muscles strong here, I want a good amount of resistance there. I want a ton of resistance. But as my muscle loses its ability to contract or gets weaker, whether that be from leverage or simply time and fatigue, well, I want that resistance to change. And that's what exercise should be. And I think as an exercise professional, most people don't get that. They don't see that there's an internal and external reality. They're just trying to figure out a way to hammer these two things together like monkeys in a cage trying to work out a problem ultimately. Okay. It's just never really been explained in that way, at least not that I've heard. And I've had the beautiful privilege to spend the last few days with Tom Purvis. And I don't know that he said this directly, but this is kind of what I've extrapolated from listening to him speak. He's really an expert when it comes to looking at exercise, looking at the machines and the bars and the forces and all the physics that happens outside of the body. It's all physics, right? Exercise is physics. And I know people don't want to hear that, but it is. And then the inside of the body is, is ultimately physics also, right? It's the mechanics of movement which is ultimately also physics, but you have these two different realities. And again, that may be helpful. Ash, you can tell me, I don't know if that's kind of a helpful paradigm or helpful thing to think about, but so many people forget about the inside and they just focus on the outside. Like it's like, I want more reps and I want more weight and I want more load and whatever, the volume and all these other nonsense things that are useful, but only useful if you first apply proper skill to these external forces, right? So just doing something for the sake of doing it does not necessarily yield results. It will yield a result, but maybe not the result that you're after. So what are some of the common mistakes people make, right? Well, doing things incorrectly is certainly going to lead to muscular imbalance. It's certainly going to lead to injuries. It's going to lead to joint pain. Now that has to be a reality. I think people think that because I exercise, because I train hard, I have a joint pain is just kind of par for the course. That's 
absolute nonsense to me. Once I learned how to train correctly, pain and injuries almost went away. They almost gets better when the better I train. And I think I want the listener to understand that is if you're training and it hurts, you're doing it wrong. If you're training and you can't feel it, you're doing it wrong. And that's the gist of it, right? You're not doing it correctly for your body, right? So just because you watch me do it some way and you say, oh, Ben does it this way, then maybe I should know that's not the way you should do it. Ben does it the way Ben should do it for my body. And you come in, Ash, and you go, well, I see you do it this way, Ben. Well, great, but I'm built very differently than you. And everyone has such a varying degree of structures, right? Muscle lengths, muscle insertions, joint sizes, bone size, bone lengths, uh, so many different things, including posture, which is a big one that people don't consider. But that ultimately is the orientation of everything. And I think it's important for people to start to conceptualize that exercise is not exercise. And ultimately, exercise is a means of imparting resistance against your body to allow the body to adapt so what adaptations are we looking for? Well, maybe it's muscle, maybe it's strength, maybe it's a metabolic adaptation to ask your body to burn more calories. You know, it's some combination therein usually, right? So how then do we subject our body to a different amplitude, a different duration, or maybe a different density of stimulus? And which of those will impart the greatest or the most appropriate result to fit my goal? I don't know if that's convoluted or complex, Ash, but you can tell me if there's something you want me to pull out. Yeah, I'm following. One of the things that's coming up as you're speaking about this stuff, and this is something that I can personally attest to having worked out with you at your gym and going through a muscle camp, is that often to really kind of understand this concept of it's not about how much weight you're lifting, it's about the muscle contraction, it's about, you know, moving your body through space and feeling that contraction. That usually results in people lifting way less weight than they're used to and having to really ditch their ego a little bit. Well, why, and right? But my first question about this then is, and this is something that you actually speak to in a really cool personal piece that I think you're going to be putting out at some point that's talking about like the origin of muscle intelligence, is this idea that at a certain point in your life and in your career, you were kind of feeling like you're willing to learn, but you kind of felt like you knew what you were doing, right? And so you've got these like meatheads coming into your gym, you're telling them to fix the squat or to improve the squat, like you need to drop all this weight off. These guys have this ego, they want to learn until they're told that they have to do something different than what they want to do. So if we're going back to this learning how to learn, asking the right questions, being open and willing to receive coaching and new experiences, how do you get through to these people who they say they're into it until the time comes when you have to strip off the weight and you have to start from scratch and start from the beginning, which is something I think you do a lot with people. Yeah. I think people attach to how much weight they lift. Like that's their badge of honor, right? Like, oh, I'm squat this much. But the answer, I mean, in muscle building, that's completely irrelevant. And my attachment then is not to how much weight you lift, but maybe how much you challenge a muscle. And that's a very different thing. So when you take away someone's momentum and you take away the bounce and you actually make them use the weight they're capable of contracting with, it's a very different game. So that's really what it's about is removing those opportunities for momentum. So what the body is naturally meant to do is make it easy. It's meant to cheat. Your body's looking to be the most efficient it can, expend the least amount of calories and ultimately use the least amount of energy, right? Mm -hmm. So your body's finding every way it can to cheat. Your body wants to use as many muscles as it can and do the least amount of work. And that's what we've designed to do. So unless you learn to become aware consciously in the moment of what actually is working and provided you're trying to train a particular muscle, is that muscle actually the thing working? It's effectively, I don't want to say useless, but it, it's really working against you. So most of these paradigms around how much muscle people can build in a year or a month or however long is based around absolutely abysmal skill. Terrible. It's almost 
comically incorrect, right? Yet people think, oh, I have a hard time building muscle. No, you don't. You just don't do it correctly. And that goes all the way up to every level of athlete, right? I work with pro bodybuilders and they come in, oh, this is my weak body part. And I'll speak to that in a second too, this weak versus strong body parts, which I wrote about in that document. So some body parts for some athletes are just going to develop, right? Some people play basketball really well and they don't know why. They just get good at it. They just do it. They're good, right? They're good right from the time they pick it up. Whereas other things like, mm, I'm not so good at that. Well, why? Well, there's genetic predispositions based on the structure of your body, based on the nervous system. That was how I discovered this stuff is I had these glaring strengths and these glaring weaknesses. And I didn't think I could ever build my weaknesses until I learned how to do this stuff correctly. And you're like, oh, I can build it all. Like it's all the same muscle fiber, right? So once you learn, it's not just about arbitrarily going in there and working hard, which will lend to your strengths. You're always going to pick exercise that fits you well or feel well, but chances are you're going to avoid things you're not good at, or maybe the things that uh, you don't feel well, but that doesn't mean you can't build those things. That just means you haven't learned how to do them yet. So I think that's maybe where this disconnect comes from is weight is completely relevant at some point. But, where, you know, the metaphor I always use is like dribbling a basketball. And Tom used the metaphor of swimming. And I think that's perfect. It's like, Ash, you've never swam before. Let's go jump in the ocean at the deepest depths. And if you get in trouble, don't worry about it. Just swim harder. What? That doesn't yeah. work. You got you to learn some technique. You got to learn how to keep yourself afloat first. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And then yeah. the consequences are high, right? So when you're a beginner and you jump into the shallow waters, the consequences are very low because your ability to produce force is very low. But the stronger you get in exercise, the bigger your engine you know, the more horsepower you have, the bigger the consequences. And that's usually why people get into this paradigm in exercise is the first five years of exercise, your ability to produce force is, is minimal. So you can train like a monkey and not ultimately see any negative effects. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm just going to clarify the word monkey because I say that and people think I'm being insulting. It's not. It's monkey see, monkey do, right? Maybe it's a little insulting, but it's tongue in cheek. Uh, <laughs> that's but, not but, what you think monkeys are, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Monkeys are very cute, but they, they all just follow each other mindlessly, right? There's no thinking. It's like, oh, that monkey sees it. I'm going to do this one. Okay. Mm. Well, how about we actually stop and use our prefrontal cortex like we should? The advanced Homo sapiens that we are. Okay, I have a practical question for you, and correct me if I'm not on the right track here. But one of the things I think you you mention is within any movement, most people will find that they have weaker and stronger parts of that movement because of muscles that they can contract or not. Or well, every movement has a part that's strong and a part that's weak, just relative to your body's ability to produce force being variable based on leverage, right? If a weight is very close to you, it's going to be very different than if a weight's further away from you. Okay. So my question is, if we're looking again at the example of a squat, right? And say for me at the bottom of the squat, I'm weak because my knees are kind of coming in or I can't recruit my glutes to produce force to come back up or whatever. I've got that noticeable weak part of my squat. And you've, I believe, said in the past that there are ways to make the part where you're strong, stronger, or the part where you're weak, less heavy or something so that you can do it properly, right? So you can work on the skill acquisition before you worry. So what are some practical ways to do that? So if I'm squatting and I've got a barbell or I've got dumbbells or something, and I know I'm weak in that bottom position, what are some practical things I can do? Well, that's a perfect question asked. So thank you. If we kind of dissect that, we say, well, the inside of your body at the bottom of the squat is weak, right? So the muscles have a poor ability to generate force there for you. And it's also mechanically most difficult because you're furthest away from your center of mass. So 
you got kind of two things working against you there. So effectively then you'd want the resistance to be lightest at the bottom. Yeah. And then as you ascend to the top, you want it to be heavier. Well, a barbell doesn't do that, right? Obviously a barbell or, or typical dumbbell or whatever it happens to be is the exact opposite of that. It's going to be heaviest at the bottom because of distance and least at the top. So how would we then find a load that's appropriate that challenges the bottom and then ascendingly gets heavier as you go up? Well, you need to pick a weight that you can control at the bottom, whatever that may be. Maybe it's the bar. Maybe it's your body weight. And in that case, in the squat, you can look at using something like accommodating resistance, which would be a band or a chain or something that increases as you go up. And that would be the only way to do that without machines is to create some type of accommodating resistance. Now, every exercise should have that thought process. It's called the resistance profile. Right, so the profile of the resistance, so a resistance, a dumbbell, a machine, a cable, it has a varying resistance against your body. So at certain parts, it's hard, certain parts is light, and oftentimes it's some type of semblance of a curve. So we want that to effectively match what our body is capable of doing, which is coming back exactly what I said in the beginning. We have to learn what our body is capable of on the inside and match that to what we're doing on the outside. Now, that's certainly maybe more complex than the average person needs to think about it, right? Or is going to think about it. It's certainly what every personal trainer in the world should understand, but do not. Of the personal trainers I've met in the last 10 years, there's probably a handful that actually understands that. And for any of the coaches out there who want to understand, this is the stuff that I teach, but way above me is Tom Purvis, who now has an amazing website with amazing resources. Exerciseprofessional.com is Tom's website. And he goes super deep. So the way I see it is I'm very much into the application, right? So I'm trying to teach you how to apply this so you can get better now. And Tom's trying to teach you how to understand it at the level of the physics and the forces and the stuff the coaches should understand, but the clients don't need to understand. Where I'm kind of bridging the gap between the coach and the client. So actually going a little bit deeper on what you asked. So we acknowledge then that you have this internal reality of weakness in these positions. You said, I don't really feel my glutes or my knees kind of fall in. Well, there's a reason for that, right? Certain muscles aren't doing their job. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's mechanics over time that's become your default. Maybe it's an injury. Maybe we slept some way and some muscle just decided it's going to turn itself off. But that's important to acknowledge that the lack of mobility or lack of ultimately stability is due to a lack of strength. Your muscles turn off as an indication of weakness. Right, So if you're lacking stability or you're lacking mobility, it's an indication of weakness at the level of the muscle or maybe at the level of the nervous system or the neuromuscular junction. So we need to say to this muscle, like, hey, glute, we need to turn on now. I need you to work. Right, And that's just not me actually verbalizing that, but that's me figuring out some tactical way to do that. So in your case, Ash, we would take you into the lengthened position of a glute. So lengthen that glute. So it's almost like think of an elastic band lengthening. And we would stay there in that position and we would activate by contracting into something, right? So in that case, maybe we're doing a single leg deadlift and we have one leg on the ground. That's the leg we're trying to activate, taking you into a bent over position like you're at 90 degrees of hip flexion. So the hip is about 90 degrees or somewhere thereabout, wherever you can control. And then I'm just going to have you push into the floor. I'm going to have you stay there. And you'll notice your contraction is likely probably pretty feeble at first. It's pretty weak. But if we do that very specifically, not with the intention of doing it hard, but with the intention of doing it specifically, and we repeat it one, two, three, four, up to five, six times, you'll notice your contraction should get better on every single rep of that, what we'll call an activation. And you could do that for any body part. And I suggest everyone does it. Like I do it before every workout. If there's very specific muscles that I know are either weak or the ones I'm going to train or the ones that are quote unquote tight, I'm going to do these activations before every single workout for sure. And often before every set, 
right? So what I'm doing is I'm cueing the nervous system through my conscious intent. I'm cueing the nervous system to say, hey, nervous system, I need this guy to turn on now. When you're sitting in front of your couch, your body's completely relaxed. The nervous system goes, I need no tension. Let's relax. So then let's get off the couch and go try to lift 500 pounds. Well, there has to be some type of progression from like zero muscular tension to appropriate degree of muscular tension. But your muscles, maybe they haven't done it enough. Maybe you haven't practiced it enough. Maybe they don't know how to contract properly. So you have to teach them in a meticulous, methodical way of like, hey, I need this thing to contract in this position. So I'm going to do whatever I can with precision to contract. I keep emphasizing precision because most people are going to think about effort. It's not effort. It's precision. And if you can master precise execution and eventually ramp up your ability to contract, that will completely go away. And your ability to produce force that will go up, your ability to be stable there will go up. Your likelihood of going outside of those ranges you can control will go down. Therefore, injuries go down. Because right, that's where injuries happen, yeah. is you're going outside of the ranges you can control. And when you're outside of the range you can control with your muscular power, the only thing left is passive structures, yeah. right? Ligaments, tendons, bones, joints. Yeah, it seems like effort without precision is what creates the injuries because you can put all kinds of effort into something, but if you're doing it wrong, you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah, and one of the taglines I often jokingly use is like before 30, you train with your balls and after 30, you train with your brains. Mm -hmm. And that's only half joking is like most people before 30, and that's not guys, girls, it's everyone. It's because before 30, you can get away with everything. Again, subjective number could be 28, could be 35, I don't know, depending on how hard you want to push. But at some point in your life, you're going to wake up and go, man, I can't train like an idiot anymore. Like I can't train like a monkey. And that's the monkey thing coming in. I actually have to use my brain. Yeah. And that's where we enter the equation. Like, hey, this is how you get this stuff to not hurt. This is how you can actually build muscle and not have plateaus. Yeah. What? No plateaus in muscle building? Correct. Muscle plateaus are absolute bullshit. Yeah. You have plateaus, you don't know what you're doing. Speaking of precision, because I just was listening back to the John Brardy interview that you did, because there's just so much there. How uh, awesome is that guy? Yeah, I mean, so good. But one of the things that he talked about, you guys talked about together, and I think just because at the beginning of this call, we were talking about how to ask the right questions. And one of the things that you guys got into in that interview is questions from both the coach's perspective and from the client's perspective. Mm -hmm. There are people listening to this that are maybe both, but either being coached or they are a coach, right? So there's different questions that need to be asked depending on who you are and who you're addressing. But do you think that there's a different approach to the kinds of questions you should be asking depending on which side you're at? Like as a coach, do you always have to be approaching it a certain way? And as a client, you always have to be approaching it a certain way? Or can we all kind of learn the same methods for how to ask the right well, question? I think from a client perspective, a client doesn't give a shit about forces. A client doesn't give a shit about what's happening inside their body. Ultimately, they just want the result, mm. right? Don't teach me how to fish, just give me the fish. And sometimes coaches want that too. That's the worst thing that you run into. I've had people attend my classes and they go, well, what protocol do you use? I'm not teaching a protocol. If I teach a protocol, I fail. If anyone teaches you a protocol, fucking leave because it's bullshit. You got to teach thought processes, right? Mm. So how do you teach someone to think their way out of a problem rather than protocol their way out of a problem? And I think that's maybe the difference is whereas a client just wants the protocol, like right. just write a pro and it should be customized, but write a protocol for me and I'm going to follow it. But do you coach think, should have no protocol. Do you think there's something, I don't want to use the words right or wrong here, but as a client, do you think that we should be trying to learn more about our internal processes and the why behind what we're doing? Because isn't that what we're talking about is having yeah. the Sort totally. Of it depends on your goals, right? Like, so if I'm an entrepreneur, which obviously I am, and if I wasn't an exercise professional, I wouldn't give a shit about what I'm doing. 
I just want to work hard. I got 45 to 60 minutes. I got kids at home. I got a multi-seven-figure business. What the fuck am I going to – I don't give a shit about what I'm contracting at the end of the day. But I've made that conscious decision as an entrepreneur to say, you know what? I'm probably going to have a trainer every day for the rest of my life. I don't want to learn this. My brain only has a limited capacity for storage. I just want somebody to do this correctly and help me kick my ass. That's it. And I value that perspective. Many people, however – don't. Many people say, oh, you know, you got to learn. Eh, I don't know. Like, I think there's certainly utility. Would it be valuable? Of course. But yeah. to start understanding exercise can be incredibly complex, or there's a lot of levels of complexity. So that's true. I'm torn on it too, because I feel like one of the things that you speak about a lot, and one of the reasons why people like you so much in this industry is because you are about learning and not just here's the answer. Like you said, not just here's the protocol, but like, let's right. understand. I get what you're saying that sometimes people, like as the client, I'm like, this isn't my job. This isn't my life. I don't need to know the ins and outs. But I do think that there is something to be said for the more you understand the reasons behind thousand percent. Here's the asterisk, right? People who listen to this podcast, fitness is one of their top three priorities, for sure. Probably top two priorities, if not top priority. So they want to learn how to do it. I want to learn how to look great. I want to feel great. I want to eat well. I want to live forever. Some people, it's kind of further down the line. Maybe it's family and finances and fitness, right? If it's there, it's like, okay, well, I have to prioritize these other things. And maybe there's other stuff that I'm not even talking about that are values. So if it's further down my value ladder, I really don't give a shit. I just want to train hard enough so I can live a long life and have awesome energy with my kids. That's good. I value that. I can appreciate that now from being on the outside. Whereas if you had asked me that question as a professional bodybuilder, I said, I don't understand why anyone would not want to understand and do it correctly. And it just doesn't make sense to me now having removed myself. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're running eight, nine figure businesses and you've got multiple things to do outside of the gym, man, I'm in the gym and I just want to disconnect and not think and do, right? Yeah. So I think there's value in that. So the other side of that, maybe what everyone should do is use exercise as a meditative experience because that's effectively what it is, right? If you're doing this stuff correctly, it's such a mindfulness experiment, right? It's this conscious attempt to connect with a single stimulus, a single thought, and to maintain your focus on that one thing for an extended period of time. That's the definition of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So can I tune out the noise? Can I tune out the brain chatter? Can I tune out everything else going on around me in this loud and distracted environment and just focus on what I got to focus on, right? That's an experiment in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think exercise is such a great opportunity to learn how to become more present, to learn how to become more conscious and more mindful, right? The joke is always the mindful meathead, right? That's the reality is like, at the end of the day, I want to become super aware of every little detail because that, just like meditation, whether or not you say it's the same or not, I don't know, but will apply to all aspects of my life because it's just allowing me to be present and be aware and be conscious. And how I perform exercise will reflect in the other parts of my life. Yeah. If I'm a mindless, angry monkey in the gym, that's also going to reflect in the other aspects of my life. And that was one of my favorite guests of all time, Jacques Taylor. I mean, one of my best friends in the world. I think that speaking about this reality that how we do anything is how we do everything. And so how we train in the gym and the consciousness we hold, the emotions we hold, and the beliefs that we hold, and the attitude ultimately is going to transfer into everything we do. So where else in life do you get an opportunity to practice discipline, to practice courage, to practice overcoming your fears and your insecurities and your inadequacies and all these things that maybe I don't really like about myself? Well, now in the gym, you have a controlled environment where I can intentionally go after my weaknesses, where I can intentionally go after my fears. 
I can intentionally go after those things that I'm feeling a little inadequate about this. And I can build over this. I can be like, oh, gosh, I didn't want to do that. And I did it. You know, I felt really discouraged about that. But I went and I did it anyways. And I got better over time. And all of a sudden, I'm building character. I'm building all these amazing, positive character attributes. That, to me, is maybe the greatest opportunity and exercise that exists, irrespective of your body. You know, your body is going to be a result of daily habits implemented consistently over time. I think setting a goal, as much as it's useful, shouldn't be the goal. Like the end result shouldn't be the goal. It's becoming the person who will achieve that goal, right? So if I want to walk around at 4% body fat all the time, whether or not I do, 10%, I need to become that person. Doing it once is useless. Doing it once is an absolute waste of time. Becoming that person is what's worth your time. Right. So how do I become the person who looks the way I want to look all the time, speaks the way I want to speak all the time, eats the way I want to eat all the time, treats people the way I want to treat all the time? That's life. Setting a goal to do it once is fucking dumb, I think. I think it's, I mean, maybe not a waste of time, but I think it's ultimately futile because, you know, as soon as you stop, you're going to go start going back and sometimes worse. And then it's the slippery slope of now negativity. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't feel confident. Oh, okay. Well, why don't we just take longer? Yeah. Which is why I've created that document you've been looking at of lean habits. Like, I'm not going to tell you how to get shredded, but if you follow these certain habits, whichever one seems to work for you, there's going to be benefit here. These are the ones you want to start stacking day on day. And that was the goal of that habit document. Well, it goes back to the conversation I think we've had before about willpower versus discipline and proper goal setting in that, you know, anybody can kind of grit their teeth through one contest prep and get abs for three weeks and then rebound and it's a nightmare and they're worse off than when they started. Anybody can just bear down and do it. And that's maybe where willpower comes in. Like I can have the willpower for three months straight to get skinny and like show off and then I'm done and I didn't learn anything. But then there's what you're talking about, which is creating this environment where you have daily behaviors that enable a goal to be achieved in a more kind of long-term but sustainable fashion. And I think that's where people need to clue in that it's like, yeah, you can get through anything for a short period of time, but is that accomplishing the inner change that you're actually looking for? Yeah, it needs to be a change. You said so many brilliant things in there. So inner change is the change to your identity, your personal identity, right? Your beliefs about who you are, your beliefs about what your reality is, what the world looks like. That's what shapes your external reality. And people don't often stop to think about that. Who do I believe I am at the most unconscious level, the level I'm not thinking about, right? What is my unconscious identity? Where do I think that I came from? Where do I think my genetics are? Where do I think my family, how do they influence me or how did they influence me? The other thing you said that was brilliant is the environment you create is what's determining your habits. And people don't necessarily always acknowledge that maybe the biggest influence on our habits is in our environment. And I spoke about that maybe in that document as well, where I spoke about, you know, you go back to your parents' house and you act very differently. I know like you'll go check like the junk cupboards and you're checking to see what mom baked and shit like that. Whereas in your current place, you're like, I would never do this. So you just kind of start to acknowledge how these environmental triggers become the greatest influence on your actions. So then how could you potentially intentionally curate the environment you spend most of your time in to have positive habits? And again, someone we have to get on the podcast, he tried to come on last year, but we didn't end up making it happen. James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits. Yeah. He's got a brilliant, brilliant approach. And I often, for better or worse, assume most people aren't as good as other people think they are. James Clear is as good as he claims to be. Yeah, he's very, very good. He's very, very brilliant. I've listened to many of his podcasts. I don't know that he's got his own podcast, but I've listened to him on other people's podcasts. People think because he wrote a book, you're an expert, and I've learned that's clearly not the case. But his book, Atomic Habits, is one that I suggest everyone read. It's one of the top on my list of the mentor group. 
along with a number of other ones. But that one, he did a really good job. And BJ Fogg, who I don't know if we connected with, but BJ Fogg is Tiny Habits. Again, maybe similar, but I still like to explore both of them because I think there's That's cool. certainly value. BJ Fogg is a Stanford professor who wrote the book Tiny Habits, which I have but haven't read. And then Atomic Habits is James Clear, who's a guy from Ohio who trains like a beast. Apparently, he looks good. So he'll be, he'll be a good fit on our show. I think he's, he's got a good haircut, too, from what I remember. That's good. So another part of this that I wanted to talk about, because again, this is just sort of fresh in my mind, and maybe one of the reasons I sound so brilliant today is just because I've been reading so many of your documents behind the scenes. <laughs> anyway, but one of them is, it goes back to this Berardi interview, and it was talking about, it's okay if you disagree with this, but his approach was this awesomeness versus awfulness approach to coaching, where a lot of times we see a client or a person who's asking us for help and all we see is where they suck, right? That they can't get their food sorted out. They can't get their stress sorted out. Their squat sucks, whatever. And of course, because we're problem solvers, we want to be like, okay, your squat sucks. Here's how to fix it. Where this other just sort of change in perspective is, okay, well, where is this person successful in other areas of their life? And how can we translate that into this part where they're struggling? And I thought that was really interesting because I actually literally never thought about it that way. But everyone who's coming to a coach, they aren't a complete mess or they wouldn't be seeking out a coach in the first place. Like maybe they've got some money, they've got an interest in improving themselves, they've probably got successful areas in their life. And how can we take that and apply it to the thing that they're trying to learn? I just thought that was such an interesting concept. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's probably the greatest parenting advice anyone will ever get either, right? It's like, think about every human being you've ever met, Ash, or at least 95%, or probably more, 99%. What is the only thing you focus on? The best example is Mr. Olympia. You walk on stage with Mr. Olympia, you're the top 10 in the world, top 15. And as soon as Mr. Olympia walks out, Everyone goes, ah, small legs, ah, his back's not in shape, ah, he's fat. Yeah, these are the top 10 physiques in the planet. It blows my mind. It just doesn't make any sense. But that's human nature, right? So yeah. and I see it in my kids, and I'm like, gosh, that just has to be some innate unconscious programming we have to always see the thing that's going to cause us harm or the thing that's negative. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, well, we have to train that, right? We have to ultimately train that in ourselves to view what can we be appreciative for. And I talk about that all the time. It's like, Look at anything in front of you and immediately train yourself to see the positive. So as a coach, that's a brilliant piece of advice. And as I say, as a parent, is to look at what they're really good at. You're really good at this. Do you see how that feels there? Tell me about what you're thinking about in that position. So one of the best stories that I've got on really how I started to explore the psychological implications of training completely unknowingly, one of my very good friends, and this is probably 2010, said to me, and you know why you're having a hard time building your back? I said, no, why? He said, because of the attitude you bring into the gym when you're training your back. Do you ever notice that it's extremely different than when you train your legs? And I bell went off in my head. And I go, so I was very driven. And if I wasn't doing things well, I'd get angry with myself. And I would train my back and I wouldn't feel it really well. So I would stop a set earlier, be distracted. And I get pissed off. So my training performance would then suffer. Whereas when I was training legs, as you can imagine, I was confident, I was happy, I was feeling the reward of, of like always pushing so hard and I was destroying everybody. Two training partners, one for the first hour, one for the, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I was just crushing everybody. 
And I would feel so on top of the world through the workout, even before I came in the workout, my body was getting the dopamine before I did the thing, right? Before I did the activity to get the dopamine, I was getting the dopamine response. Whereas with the bag training, I was getting the noradrenaline, the stress response before I jumped into the actual thing. So that psychological attachment, I was like, God, that's brilliant. At the time, I didn't know the neurochemistry of it. But yeah. now looking back on it, you're like, okay, cortisol and norepinephrine, your body doesn't want to learn. Your body literally shuts off the hippocampus's ability to learn. Whereas yeah. you get dopamine, your body's just chasing that learning, getting better and better and better. So that's a huge piece. I love that you brought that up, Ash. I mean, again, another strike of brilliant. Uh, yeah, I'm on a roll today. It's just from reading smart people and then bringing it up again. I get, it makes me look smart. So it's perfect. It's funny because I had the exact same issue back versus legs except switched because I prefer back day to leg day. But it is a total human nature concept that the things you're good at, you get better at and the things you suck at, you continue to suck at because that's the mind frame that you have going in. You into feel it. disempowered, don't you? Like, yeah. So for me, I was like, God, I just don't know what I'm doing. I can't feel it. I got pissed off. And so this is what my business is founded in, right? My objective is empowering you with the knowledge and skill set to build your greatest body. And that comes with the knowing. And this is an innate knowing that we should all have, that you can absolutely build any body you want. You just don't have the habits or the skills yet, right? So why we're here. We're here to teach the thought process, the skills, the habits, so that you can ultimately develop this body of your dreams that you love living in. And it, it becomes who you are rather than something that you're chasing. And that hopefully I can get my head around at some point writing that book, make it who you are, make it part of your DNA of your unconscious identity. And then that becomes the person you are. And you take that with you everywhere you go in all of the situations, positive and negative, you show up as this person who knows who you are. You believe in yourself. You have character that's been developed and great self-belief. That maybe is the entire mission summed up with muscle intelligence here is habits, skills, belief, et cetera, you know, empowerment. Yeah, I love that. Also, can we just talk about what a power move it is to have multiple training partners for leg day where you're like, this guy's done after an hour. It, was, it wasn't just guy. leg day. It was also back day. So toward the end of my career, I was like, man, I need to push harder. Leg day, like I would crush everybody. So oftentimes I would bring in someone for the first hour back and then do chest or something afterwards. And it was funny. I would like change my shirt. So I'd be soaked through and I would change my shirt and I'd come back I'd have a little water and I'd be ready to go. Yeah. I was like a new person and yeah. you just start a new workout. And that was definitely a good confidence builder. Just no, I knew nobody else was doing that. Right. So I know I could step on stage with anybody and go, okay, let's go. Yeah. And I'm getting shaped so fast. And people talk about having to do cardio to get in shape for a contest. Like when I was doing that stuff, I never had to. And as soon as I learned how to train correctly, I didn't have injuries either, which was so beautiful, right? I could train so hard all the time. Didn't have to train as often, which was great. Yeah. I would train so hard, ate well, no injuries for the most part. I made some stupid mistakes throughout my day like everybody, but this was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait until that. I know we're just like teasing stuff for no reason, just probably irritating people, but I really can't wait for that piece that you wrote recently. That's your origin story. Because I mean, again, I've known you for a couple of years now and I didn't know this stuff and it was really, really compelling. I think people are going to be very interested to hear your evolution. I think kind of time we're talking about here and is what is the mission of the Muslim intelligence, right? As soon as I realized, and as soon as I had the thin end of the wedge in the door, like, oh, I can actually build this body part. That created empowerment in me. And then learning the skill, I was like, oh, whether or not I choose to build it is irrelevant at this point. It was like, I know that I can without any shadow of a doubt, I know that I can. And that's the most important thing that I want to get across to everybody. Yes, you can. And then now if you choose to, here's the skill set. And the beauty is once you've got that skill set, it's now a habit you can have for the rest of your life. 
Yeah. I know you've got to jump off soon, but is there anything about that's coming up or the mentorship program that you're currently doing? Is there anything you want to just talk about or shout? Uh, this stuff is really well articulated in the body part guides that I finished. And I think you edited those too. I did some body part, especially some training guides, and it goes so much deeper than just the body parts, right? I get into the mindset stuff, I get into what you should be thinking about when you're training this body part. I think I get into a little bit about mobility and stability to be able to access those ranges. And all of this stuff is available on the Muscle Intelligence website. So go to muscleintelligence.com or mi40nation.com, which is the member site. But a specific site, you guys can all go get something for free is muscleintelligence.com slash body part. You can pick up a free body part guide which is any body part you like, and hopefully people enjoy it. One thing I want to mention, actually, somebody made a funny comment to me recently when you posted about who do you want on the podcast. I think it was on that post, maybe the Ben Greenfield post or the Matt Gallant post. Everyone goes, Ben, why are you blinking so much? Did you see that comment? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I do. I notice I do. It's because I don't wear my blue blockers. Yeah. Right? So I'm like staring at the screen all day, and my eyes are starting to hurt. That's why I'm always wearing my blue blockers when I'm – at my computer. But when I'm on the podcast, like you notice, it gets such a deep blue reflection yeah. that I feel like people are going to get pissed off. They can't see my eyes. Yeah. So I take them off for the podcast, but the rest of the day I got them on. I mean, I got my reds right here. Oh, let's put the nerd glasses oh, on. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Listen, I was trying to look fancy today, so I put contacts on instead of glasses because mine are actually prescription glasses. I don't know if people know this, that you can buy the blue blocks with prescriptions. But I'm telling you, you and I are both spending probably more time than we'd love to, ideally, in front of a screen. I am looking at the stupid screen all day long and those glasses are fully saving my life like the difference yeah. that i'm noticing and i fatigue when i use them is crazy people that's the second time i've noticed it i'm like man i gotta pay attention to that it's really bad and i noticed that i'm doing it but i'm sitting here like going like this one hack that i do is every 45 to 60 minutes i go outside and i kind of get the peripheral view and i try to get my eyes locked back in with the sun but oftentimes these podcasts go a long time. So by the end of it, staring at this blue screen, oh man, my, and it's terrible. If I'm in my office, like the podcast studio, the lights above are a little flickery. Same thing happens. Yeah. So blue blockers tend to save my vision. And again, I don't know what the long-term implications are if it's bad, but I certainly look silly and my eyes always hurt. You know, they're always red and stuff from sitting at the- I would imagine it can't be good. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I'm nearsighted is because I read so much as a kid, hashtag nerd life, but I was constantly staring at something this close and that made it so that the muscles that were enabled me to see far away are no longer there. So another hack that I have is if you're somebody who's staring at a screen all day, like you said, if you can go like every half hour, 45 minutes, go outside, but also just taking breaks every 10 minutes or so to literally look away and stare at something far away then stare at something close and stare at something medium just to give your eyes that variety, I think it's really important too. Yeah. Blue Box is also going to be the sponsor of our podcast today. So yeah. shout out to Blue Box for always being there for us to protect us, to give us stylish looking glasses mm -hmm. that save our eyes. So Blue Box, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash muscle will save you 15%. 15% code muscle if you want to use that too. I think you can get the discount either way, but the code is muscle yeah. if you want the discount. And so a lot of our listeners have purchased with our code and <laughs> We're grateful for every single one of you for doing that. And as is Blue Blocks, and I think everyone that I've spoken to has given us a positive review. Yeah. We've never yet to get one negative review. Everyone's super happy. And they give you free shipping, which is awesome. Yeah. I also have the sleep mask, which anyone who travels, obviously nobody's traveling right now, but anybody who travels, the sleep mask is an essential addition because it's different quality. Those typical things that like jam into the side of your head with those uncomfortable elastics. Yeah. It's not like that. So that would be something if you're looking for something to improve your sleep, your quality of sleep, whether at home, if there's lights or when you travel, I suggest getting a sleep mask as well. 
So shout out to Blue Box guys. A shout out to you for being here. Thank you very much. I'm always aware, we are aware that your time is valuable. So we hope that we're providing value um, in helping you live your greatest life and a body you love. Ultimately, the wisdom and the confidence to know that you can build a body you love. And it's not going to be an overnight process. Anyone selling an overnight process is ultimately selling you. I wouldn't say they're selling you a dream, but maybe not something you should aspire to anyways. Aim to become the type of person who has the body of your dreams rather than achieving it once and then being stressed about not being able to maintain that standard forever. Create a standard that is who you are at your identity, at your core. Guys, thank you very much for being here. Ash, thank you for being here. Have a wonderful day, guys. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.